Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. John Calvin says, when anyone gains a knowledge of Romans, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Martin Luther, who considered James, what we just spent the last six months on, a right straw epistle, who apparently he, he was okay with burning it, basically, said of, J, uh, said of Romans that a person cannot devote themselves too much to Romans. That a person could read Romans every day for the rest of his life, and it would grow sweeter, it would grow more vibrant. I disagree with Luther regarding James. I'm sure that you do as well. Having spent the last seven months in it and the, the blessing that it's been to our church, I disagree with Martin Luther that James is a right straw epistle. However, I very much concur with his assessment of Romans. The book of Romans is linked directly to some of the church's most significant movements. In the year 328, uh, excuse me, the, the year 386, Augustine of Hippo was converted. You might know of Augustine of Hippo. He's the father of, he kind of coined the doctrine of original sin, laid sort of the foundation of what would become the Reformation. Augustine was converted in 386 when he heard little children singing out, tole lege, tole lege, meaning take up and read. He hears children singing, take up and read, take up and read. He looks around, wonders, what am I to take up and read? Sees a copy of Scripture, opens it as if at random to Romans chapter 13. And he reads verses 13 and 14, which says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine is most known for his rebuttal against Pelagius, who argued that man was generally, basically, innately good. That we had the capacity to choose God if we wanted to. And Augustine says, no, that we have this imputed sinful nature that, that causes us to only sin always outside of Christ. Martin Luther was converted in 1513. A seminary trained Catholic monk wrestling with the doctrines of grace, wrestling with Romans 1.17. It was in the wrestle with Romans 1.17 that, that Martin Luther first came to understand that the righteousness by which those who have faith shall live is not righteousness that we achieve ourselves, 
but rather is righteousness that is given to us by God as a gift of His grace. He quotes of his conversion. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which our merciful God justifies us by faith. John Wesley the founder of Methodism, was converted in 1738. He and his brother Charles had already gone to the Americas, had already gone to the colonies to convert the Native Americans. And he returns to England, and he captures this in his journal. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He arrives back to England and begrudgingly goes to a meeting at the Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to Romans. And he says this, about a quarter, after, uh, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Augustine converted in 386 as he reads Romans 13. The, the founder, the, the one who coined for us the doctrine of original sin. Martin Luther converted in 1513. John Wesley converted from Luther's preface, Luther's comments on Romans in 1738. I'm told that Jonathan Edwards was significantly uh, impacted by Romans, though I don't know the specifics of his conversion. You know, Jonathan Edwards was the father of the first great awakening in the 1700s in northeastern America, in New England. And, and the reality is that some of you are probably scoffing, thinking, who hasn't been incredibly impacted by at least the Romans' road to salvation? Right? If you're in Christ, there's a really strong chance that someone, as they shared the gospel with you, appealed to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is, is death. Or Romans 5.8, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Romans 10.9 and 10. That if, you confess, that, if you, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? Who, who almost, almost, I would be amazed that someone would be converted without Romans. It's possible. I believe that Romans is probably the most impactful letter ever written. And God used Paul's writings to impact billions of people's lives. And I believe that God continues to impact people's lives through the faithful preaching and reading and study of Romans. It is with that eager expectation and anticipation that I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, as we begin. 
a very, I hope, transformative, enlightening. I mean, do I have some high expectations? Augustine's conversion, Martin Luther's conversion. I mean, do we have some expectations or what? So today we're looking at uh, Romans 1 through 3. Not Romans 1, 1 through 1, 3, but Romans 1 through Romans 3. In our first week of the overview, five-week overview, before we begin again in Romans 1, 1 on August 28th. I want you to look around you. Not only is the, congregation, is, is the worship center full, but as you look around you, no matter how long you have come to Wildwood, you will most certainly find someone here who has come here less. The Lord has blessed our church with tremendous and diverse growth. People are coming here from Methodist denominations, Lutheran denominations, Catholic, uh, Reformed Baptist, assemblies and other charismatic backgrounds. There are people that have never gone to church in their life who are now attending our church. Amen. Amen. It's for that reason that I feel compelled to preach through Romans to lay, as it were, a foundation. What are the, what are the doctrines of the faith? And, and why do we believe what we believe? Because the temptation might be to just say, well, whatever you believe is okay. And, and, and what's, the only thing that matters here is unity. Unity does matter. But truth trumps unity. And, and so we want to lay a foundation, and we want to go straight to the Word of God and say, this is what the Word of God says. Now, are there debates? Surely there are debates. But this is where we are as a church, and I hope and pray that as a result of this years-long, two years-long, realistically, four, <laughs> process of going through Romans, that you'll walk away with not just a knowledge, but a love for doctrine and theology. And it won't be this thing that's left to Sunday school teachers and seminary professionals and pastors, but that rather you will understand not only what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Now, some of you will, like John Wesley, through the course of this series, suddenly find your heart warmed for the very first time. You, like he, have served on missions trips. You've taken the gospel to the nations. You've volunteered in the church for decades. But there will come a moment for some of you in which you finally, suddenly feel your heart's strangely warmed, and you will be converted to the faith that you once preached to others, you will come to full faith yourself. Others, others of you will, like Augustine, be called out of darkness into light. You're going to approach this study currently 
mired in sexual immorality and lust for material gain, like Augustine. And you'll be impacted by that statement. Let us make no provision for the flesh. Some of you, like Martin Luther, will finally be set free from a legalistic pursuit of self-righteousness. Believing the, ju- the, the, the just will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous, God is righteous. The righteousness of God is revealed. And you will go from believing that I must make myself righteous to live to finally understanding that by faith, God gives me His righteousness. Others of you, like Jonathan Edwards, will, as a result of this series, feel in your spirit a a new spark for godliness and holiness in the world around you. And you will take that flame into the world, and another great awakening will happen. Amen? Anybody want that? Anybody? We're just going to set the bar high, right? I mean, God's Word is that powerful. Who knows what the Lord will do? But if I'm honest with myself, see, I'm always a realist. Never, I'm never pie in the sky. Some of you are going to be converted like John Wesley, like Martin Luther, like Augustine, Like John Edwards, there's just going to be this burning zeal within you. But I'm realistic. And there will be others, in spite of my hope, that we would all find joy and be edified and be lifted up. There will be others who, in the preaching of Romans, you will undoubtedly despise the doctrines that Paul exposes. Because deep down in your heart, you don't truly believe what the Bible teaches. You you have this, and I'm not speaking to everyone, I'm just speaking to whoever I'm speaking to. And I want to confront, I want to challenge. There are some who, when when we read, even in these first three chapters, you're going to say, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to believe this. I pray that your soul is softened, your heart is is turned, so that you not only believe, but you love God's Word. Amen? The Word is powerful. It divides. It exposes. The Word bestows life, but it also demands response. It draws some people so close to God that they can barely stand, while others it causes to stumble and fall away. Come what may, God will be glorified through the faithful preaching and teaching of His Word. Amen? Is man innately good or totally depraved? Does God send people to hell or does He rescue them from it? Is God justified in judging people who never hear the gospel? 
Why does God allow evil to exist? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? These and questions like them are answered in the first three chapters of Romans. And like I said before, I, I don't want you to worry that, man, we're covering a whole lot. We're, we're, we're flying over Romans over the next five weeks at the 50,000-foot level. We're looking at major themes. You see them on banners behind me. Sin and justification and sanctification and sovereignty and fellowship. These are the, the five themes that I see that govern the book of Romans. And so today we're looking at the theme of sin in chapters 1 through 3. In a few weeks, August 28th, we'll come back and we'll begin at Romans 1.1. But now I want to set the framework so that as we preach through here, my, my fear is that if I just started at Romans 1.1 and preach, the next several months in chapters 1 through 3, you're just going to hear sin and sin and sin and sin and wrath and judgments. And I want to get there quickly to justification for your sake and my sake. And then once we have all these in mind, then we'll set out to explore verse by verse. Now, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 serve as an introduction, so we're going to skip that today. Chapter 1, 16 and 17 is the key verse for the whole book. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, it is with a humble yet expectant heart that I come before you. And that hopefully we all come before you with an expectation and anticipation, Lord, that you're going to do amazing things as we turn to the study of Romans. Lord, we, we need a foundation. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it, Father. And I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word over these next several years. I pray that there would be some Jonathan Wesleys, some Martin Luthers, some Augustines, some Jonathan Edwards, who through the course of our study are converted, are inspired, are set ablaze for your glory. And I pray, Father, that you bless now the preaching of your word. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to glorify you as we respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pause right there and just state from the outset, no one is without, uh, no one has excuse. No one has excuse. There are no innocent victims in the world as it relates to God's righteous wrath. There are no innocent victims. There are only suppressors of the truth. What is implied with those who suppress the truth? It means there is active resistance and rejection of God. The whole world and everything in it bears witness to the glory of God. That's how he created it. And yet man rejects him in order to worship the creation instead. So they see the beauty of the mountains and the trees, and instead of being in awe of the Creator, they worship instead the mountains and the trees or the things that they make with their own hands. They turn to idolatry rather than worshiping the Creator. The fundamental problem in the world today, the reason that we send people out, the reason that we equip people to, go, to be sent out into the world with the gospel is that worship doesn't exist. The, the, the fundamental problem is that people worship other gods and do not worship, which is the truest sense of the word worship, the one true living God. John Piper says missions exist because worship doesn't. Now, we may not find pagan idols in the homes of everyday average people. I think we would of many, especially as we would go around the world, we would find pagan idols. But even the fact that we may not find pagan idols in our homes there are no doubt that people today still worship the things they create with their own hands. They worship their jobs, their hobbies, their sports, their kids, their appearance, their toys, their reputations, technology, education. There's literally no way for us to exhaust this list because, once again, Piper says our hearts are idol factories. What does that mean? It means our sinful, fleshly, carnal hearts are busy pumping out idols. That's what it does. In its fallen nature, it just makes another idol. You take something that's good, a, a job, a spouse, children, health, and our Hearts want to make an idol of it. Instead of being a good thing, it becomes a God thing. It becomes the ultimate thing. It's what our hearts naturally do. 
Verse 26 through 32, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Can you imagine Paul walking around just blurting these things out as his scribe is is feverishly writing this down? Are you serious, Paul? You want me to write this? What an indictment on humanity! Why is there evil in the world? Simple. Man rejects God. That's it. Why why are we so evil? Man rejects God. Creation rejects Creator. Whenever that happens, what's going to happen? The disintegration of society. And when did it begin? Not in 2020. Though it felt like it. Genesis 3. The world has never been any better than it is right now. Maybe in certain bubbles, and and we've been blessed. And, And we're still blessed. I mean, if we look at the world and how Christians are being persecuted, we're still blessed. We still got it good. But the world has never been any worse than it is right now. Paul wrote these things 2,000 years ago. We need to reckon with the fact that people sin willfully. It's not ignorance that causes people. It's a suppression of the truth. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They usurp the glory of God. They worship the things that their hands create rather than the glorious Creator. They may not know the God whom they reject, but that in itself, the fact that they do not know their own Creator, reveals how far man has fallen from God. The fact that we give no glory to the One who created us. I was sharing with a a man in the church who is a brilliant tile artist. He installs tile and he does it beautifully and he creates these masterpieces and i said imagine if your if your shower project could personify you see when someone walks into the bathroom and they see it they they say to the owner of that house you have a marvelous shower i've never seen such a beautiful shower and the owner says well thank you very much i yeah i paid for that I, I saw it, I, you know, I wanted that, I, we designed it, 
I paid for that. It's my shower. It brings glory to me. But then what does he do? He says, ah, but this person, here's the the one who built it. Therefore, he gives glory to that. Now, imagine if the shower were to personify and someone walks into the bathroom and says, what a marvelous shower. And the shower says, thank you. I am beautiful. Give me the glory. Right? The creation has an obligation to give glory to the Creator. And we go, nah. Nah. I want that glory. I want that glory. And this little God that I make with my hands, He doesn't demand that I give Him glory. He lets me take the glory. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So lest we get too high on our horse, Paul focuses attention now on what I would call the moralist the self-righteous, the religious moralist. Because I think that maybe as Paul was writing this, he knew that there might be people who would sit back and cross their arms and lean against the chair and and say, okay, I'll tune in whenever Paul's writing is relevant to me. Right now, all he's talking about is the pagans out there. Paul's like, no, I got a word for all of us. Just as idolatry is condemned, so is religious hypocrisy. He's condemning those who who have their pet sins. You know, the sins that we don't talk about, the sins that, that we just sort of accept as okay. We don't talk about those sins, but we judge other people for theirs. Paul says, you think you're going to get away with that? You think, you think you're going to skate through judgment as you judge other people for their sin, but you are drowning in your own as if it's not sinful to be full of pride? As if lusting with your eyes is not sinful? As if hating your brother and being bitter and resentful is not sinful? You think that you're going to skate through judgment? So Paul is just like, listen, all of us. This is a word for everyone, okay? Pagan out there, religious moralist here. And I think I've said this before that I'm a recovering Pharisee, right? You, you may be able to relate. A recovering Pharisee. So to the recovering Pharisees like me, he has a word. Four and five. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What a sober assessment. Remember that Paul is writing to the church in Rome, okay? And he's speaking to people who thought they could earn their own righteousness. He's speaking to people like Martin Luther, 
people who thought they could, they could make themselves right with God. And the trouble with self-righteousness is it does put us on the high horse. Because if I have achieved this level of righteousness, then everyone else could. What a sober assessment that these people who presumed upon the kindness of God, that because God hasn't squashed me like a bug that I am in my self-righteousness, that somehow I'm a righteous dude, that I've got His blessing. And Paul is like, His kindness is meant to draw you to repentance, not religious hypocrisy. For as Paul says in 2.11, God shows no partiality. No partiality. Skip down to Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Even 2,000 years ago, even Paul, understanding the Old Testament, realizes that God's Will and God's desire was for our heart. Not for external behavior, not for religious deeds. I believe it was to King Saul that Samuel said the Lord desires sacrifice, uh, desires obedience, not sacrifice. In other words, in other words, King Saul, God wants you to be a man after his own heart. It's not, the sacri- it's not the religious things that you do that he desires, but he wants your heart. And so says Paul. In 3, 1 through 8, Paul refutes the notion that the law and the prophets are all for naught. And, and, and God choosing Israel and setting them apart, that, that that's all for naught. The fact that Israel rejected God does not mean it it does not nullify God's faithfulness. The fact that Israel was not faithful does not mean this was a failed experiment. Here in 9 through 18, he draws it all together. Everything that we've been talking about, about the pagans and their idolatry and the self-righteous and their moralism and their their religious acts and, and, and trying to save them themselves through works of the law, which is what Israel thought they had to do. He says in 9 through 18, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How can anyone read that and come away with a doctrine that man is innately good? That if we want to, if we try hard enough, that we will do what God desires us to do. No one seeks for God. There is no fear of God 
before the rise. Lest we sugarcoat the truth, humanity is hopelessly depraved. Wicked. Every one of us. Every man, woman, and child is hopelessly broken. Three twenty. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What good was the law? Many people ask this. What's the point of the Old Testament? Do we just throw the Old Testament out? No, the Old Testament, the point of the Old Testament, the point of the law is to show us how bad we are. To show how righteous and holy God is. If we didn't have the law, we think, ah, my vain efforts at being a good person, which really boils down to I'm better than the person next to me, or I, I look and find someone that's worse than me, and so I'm better than them, that vain and futile attempt at righteousness becomes good enough without the law. The law says it's perfection, not close to perfection. The law reveals to us how bad we really are. Because it's not until we realize how bad we really are that we realize how gracious and good God really is. Amen? See why I want to bring this all out today? It would take us months to get here. Right? We are really bad. Really bad. And God is really good. The righteous by faith will live. None is righteous. The law cannot make us righteous. We're condemned. Right? But God. But God. But Jesus. But redemption but faith, but grace. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We're not made righteous by the law. His righteousness is manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They all pointed to it. Every book is about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, all points to the story of redemption by faith in Christ. They all point to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Not for all who work their way up to it, but for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His gift, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's the good news, folks. There's the good news. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and no matter how much we try to make ourselves righteous, you know, Martin Luther walked on his knees up the steps to the cathedral, 
many times, many times. Do this and you'll atone for your sin. Do this and you'll atone for your sin. The selling of, of penance, indulgences. How many Hail Marys, how many Our Fathers is required to atone for my indiscretion yesterday? No matter how much we try, the reality is that we will never, ever pay our own sin debt. That's what Martin Luther came to realize. He thought he had to make himself righteous. He had to, he had to, he had to be righteous himself. He had to achieve God's righteousness. And then that day that he realized it is a gift of grace. Mankind is innately broken. There is no innate goodness in us anywhere. Not just Amer- I'm not just saying Americans are broken. I'm saying humanity is broken. Every man, woman, and child since Adam and Eve is broken. But God makes a way. God makes a way. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us, the godly, for the ungodly. It is not by might, nor by power, nor by effort, nor by works of righteousness. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ that you and I can be redeemed. Amen? A few things I want us to keep in mind as we work through Romans verse by verse. Number one, God is a righteous judge. It is right for God who created us to judge us. His wrath is righteous. Why? Because every one of us, bar none, rejects our holy Creator God. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we have usurped His glory. We deserve the full cup of His wrath. He is an infinite God. Therefore, we deserve eternal judgment. We, we sometimes impose our own man-centric ego onto God and say, I would never punish my child forever when they slap me in the face. The problem, brother and sister, is as important as you are, especially in that child's life, you are not their God. God is God, and God is infinite. So when we sin against this holy and righteous God, we sin against an infinitely holy and righteous God, and we deserve the infinite wrath that He gives. Number two, everyone sins because they want to. No one has to force us to sin. The, 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 the little joke that I like to tell is no one has to tell a toddler to lie or to be selfish. It's innate. There's no innate goodness, but there is innate badness. You don't have to teach a child to do wrong things. They do it because they want to. They do it because we have an imputed sin nature. That's important for us to understand, that when Adam sinned, 
all sin. That's what Romans 5.12 says. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're not paying for Adam's sin. We're not being judged because Adam sinned. We are being judged because our nature as descendants of Adam causes us to sin. And we sin because we want to. We sin because that's what our nature, our flesh, causes us to do. Martin Luther says that what sin does is it causes us to arch inward. To arch inward. That's why we're so selfish by nature. That's why we have to put that to death even as Christians. Our sin nature causes us to want what we want, what is best for us. Our glory, our comfort, our edification, everything is about us. Friendships are about who likes me and who can make me feel good. Church membership is what can the church do for me? Sometimes preaching the gospel is about how can I feel good about what I'm doing? Sin nature causes us to arch Inward, not Godward. Third, God redeems sinners. Amen? God redeems sinners. That's, that's what he does. That's all he does. Well, he does other things, but in terms of sinners, that's all he does, redeem us. He doesn't accept saints who have worked their way to him. All he does is redeem sinners. He deals with our unrighteousness by giving us grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We call this justification, and it's our theme for next week as we study Romans 4 and 5. If you want to read through, so you can digest a little bit, you'll know that we're reading Romans 4 and 5 next week. Paul says this, Paul says this in Romans 5.15, The free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass was in Adam. Adam sinned, all sinned. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift for many. For you. You don't have to earn your righteousness. Knowing that you cannot do it should be the very best news I could give you today. If, if I were to say to you, you're sort of wretched, but you can earn your salvation, you ought to hit the floor weeping, saying, what must I do to be saved? But I'm telling you, as Paul tells you, that you're hopelessly wretched. And there's nothing you can do to be saved except call out to Jesus Christ in faith and have his righteousness imputed to you. He takes on your filthy rags and he gives you his righteousness. I want to revisit Martin Luther's conversion as I wrap up here, he said in his journal, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God 
who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Pause here. Perhaps that is your response this morning. You rage at the idea that this holy and righteous God would burn in anger and righteousness and wrath towards sinners. Maybe you rage at that thought, just as Martin Luther did. He continues, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I, have, I, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which our merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Sinner, have you grown weary of your sin? Self-righteous moralist, have you grown weary of your works? Is there any fear of God before your eyes? Any hunger and any thirst for righteousness? This morning, I invite you to enter through the doors of paradise that are flung wide open for you. Lay down your sin at the feet of the Savior and take up the free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The blood poured out for us and the broken body of Jesus we symbolize in the elements of the Lord's Supper. If you come today by faith in Jesus Christ, worship Him as the saint that you are, for He has made you so. If you are not coming today by faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to believe in Jesus Christ and come to faith in Jesus Christ even today. Either right where you are or come here and let me help you walk through those open doors into paradise. If that's not you, if you're not willing to do that today, if you're not ready to do that today, I invite you to abstain from communion. Communion is a recognition of what Jesus did, not generally, but personally for you. Examine your hearts.
sing praise to his name, and let these words sing over your soul, I stand redeemed by grace alone. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the truth of your word. Hard as it may be to hear, it is necessary to set us free from any ideation that we are good enough to earn favor with you so that in our hopeless estate we would turn in faith to you. I pray for hearts today, Lord, that you would break them and give them new life. And for those that are in Jesus, I pray this would fuel our flame, that we would go out into a world that is depraved, and we would see not our enemies, but opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.